to sing you a deadly read a Bible verse for you. It'll be hopefully on the screen following your Bibles. It's just one verse. 1 Peter 3.15 But in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. So I really appreciate being asked to come along. It has been an honour to share part of my story. And not just that, I just don't want to come here and tell you this story. It's personal to me and my family, but I want to uh, help you guys, if I can, reach out to someone like me in my setting uh, over 36 years ago. And I'm really pleased that there has been the interest expressed by the leadership here to do this, that you're uh, grappling with how to reach your neighbour with the gospel message. So I'm not going to suggest ideas of how to do that tonight, or methods, or venues, or cases that we can present the gospel, but it's more about helping us understand what the Roman Catholic mindset is concerning salvation. Because they do believe truths concerning salvation, or they have a system that they believe concerning salvation, what their church teaches on how someone can get to heaven. And what I want to say tonight, I want to frame in the context of that verse that we read, the verse that's above me, 1 Peter 3.15. And that little verse, it really packs a punish when you think about it. Its historical context is Peter instructing uh, believers on how to reach their community for Christ, uh, just what we're trying to do tonight. And interestingly, you know, I'm not going to say much about this, but I trust that it doesn't need to be said, but I said anyway, but it begins with a challenge that each Christian be actually living for Christ. I'm going to take it that you know that. That I've no need to dwell on how our behavior helps or hinders the gospel. Do you know, we interviewed a guy last Sunday night in our service from a Roman Catholic background who gloriously saved come to know the Lord. And a couple of years before he came to faith, his brother had come to faith, brought up in Balabay, County Monaghan. And he says it was his brother's witness. His life had changed so much, it drove him mad. He was so curious to know what it was that had drove him to a meeting to say, I've got to resolve this. I've got to find out what it is he has. Because where our community sees us living out what we say we believe, then that is a message that communicates people in words. You know, Christians who live for the Lord, who in their hearts have set apart Christ as Lord, will shine for Jesus and draw curiosity from unbelievers, regardless of their faith upbringing. And I'll also say that where believers uh, publicly fail to behave as the world expects them to, then that too is a message that communicates deeper than words. It's an old saying, but it's a true one. Nothing spreads the gospel so much as a Christian 
nothing hinders the gospel so much as a Christian. And so Peter's advice to begin with uh, to Christians who want to provide spiritual light to a darkened world is good advice. First he says, get this part right. In your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Be genuine followers, be committed Christians, walk the walk. But that being said, it is more than our behaviour. Uh, and Peter knew that. It is our beliefs. It is being able to provide answers to the questions that people have. Uh, we also have to talk the talk, in other words. When the world sees hope within us, they'll have questions. What is different about that person? And where does that hope come from? And so Peter says it is our role to be ready to answer those questions, to provide the reason for the hope that we have. And I think that's where the church so often stumbles we cannot effectively answer those questions that people are asking. And I think that, if I want to be blunt tonight, is that is where the church has become lazy. We haven't done the work we need to do to be able to provide an answer. So I want to help you have a conversation with people brought up as I have been. And many are presently doing that. And if you are, thank you. You're trying to share your faith with a work colleague, a neighbour, friend. And I do hope you have friends in the Roman Catholic tradition, or even family member. We just cannot find the words to explain the difference between what you believe and they believe. And so that's why I want to teach you what they have been brought up with, what they already believe concerning salvation, because if we can weed out the error and sow in the truth, then you are a more effective witness to them. With the God that I was brought up with, at least the understanding of the God that I was brought up with, it was always, to me anyway, a measurement of the good things done against the bad things that I did. And in that spiritual arithmetic, as long as the good things I did were more than the bad, I just assumed there was a better chance of me getting into heaven when I died. And things pretty stayed, things pretty much stayed that way until I went to Australia. You know, man, I was about 19, 20, and it was there that I met Christians. And I stayed with Christians who were different to me, whose manner and example challenged all that I had ever knew and been, had learned about God. They spoke about Jesus differently than I spoke about him, but they didn't really speak about him. Yes, his name was on my lips, but not in flattering them. But they knew as if he were personal to them. It almost seemed that whereas I knew about God, they knew God. They didn't seem to use that measuring system that I was so familiar with. 
Instead, I saw a simple, trusting faith in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior that I also knew with all my religious upbringing and catechisms and what I was taught that I didn't have. I saw in them a peace that I also knew that I didn't have. So to these people, God was personal. Now, growing up as a good Catholic, that term, personal, was very alien to me. It wasn't anything that was ever in my vocabulary when I thought about God. Because God wasn't personal, he was impersonal. He was distant, he was to be feared and obeyed rather than someone with whom you could possibly have a relationship with. He was mystical, approached only by, through the priest, dead saints, uh, and of course Mary. This God was accessed by a rosary made statues, holy waters, and I figured that God only became personal when you died and went to heaven. It never got that far, guys. And so, as you can see from that, I already had, uh, I already had established, I, I already had an established understanding of a means of salvation. There was a system that I had been taught, and I had, I had learned of how someone like me could get to heaven. But in my time there with those believers, I learned a different system, a different means, a means of grace. I was taught that Jesus, that God, through Jesus Christ, came near. He took the initiative to me. And through the cross, and he gifted a sinner uh, the faith to approach him directly. And so uh, a person could gain a, a righteous standing before him without <coughs> wasn't dependent on works. And I learned that a joy-filled relationship with an almighty God was possible here and now, not just when you died and went to heaven. And so the Christians that I met took some time to teach me the simplicity of faith in Christ alone and to explain what Jesus had achieved on the cross for someone like me. And it took a little bit of time to work through the nuances of my understanding of salvation and set that side by side with the Reformed doctrine he, by dying there on that cross, was removing the judgment from my sins. And if there was no judgment, there was no measurement, I could stop the endless. Am I good enough? Have I done enough? That could all stop. <coughs> and that left me free in faith to have a relationship with God. And to me, that was just life transforming because of two things. One, I could stop working for my salvation. And two, I could start enjoying a relationship. One day, uh, in the quietness of her room, they, my my friends, I actually went to stay with them, and they kindly and graciously opened their home. And what an eye opener that was! I mean, there were Christian books sitting about, and Bibles here and there, and and people went to church, these people went to church twice on Sunday and do it. And that wasn't enough, they went during the week as well. To prayer meetings, they meet, but how did that? 
<laughs> so they put on a cassette. So long ago, was any young people. <laughs> put on a cassette of a, a preacher preaching a sermon. So I sat there in the front room and I listened to this sermon and I and towards the end of the message the minister delivering the sermon was inviting those who were listening to it to simply approach Jesus in faith. Come as you are. Come acknowledging your sin. Come inviting the Lord Jesus to be your saviour. And he offered to lead us Remember, he wasn't in the room, this was by a cassette tape. He offered to lead us in a prayer of salvation. And somewhere, I gained the faith to pray this prayer. I said to myself, I'm, I'm going to pray this prayer. Now, there were other people in the room, and I didn't tell anybody I was praying this prayer, and I didn't pray it out loud, I prayed it into myself. Simple little prayer, dear Lord Jesus, acknowledge that I am a sinner. I acknowledge that you are the Savior. I confess my sin and ask you to become my Savior. Amen. Amen. It wasn't a magic prayer. But in that moment, I experienced the presence of God. It was quite hard to explain this when it's over 36 years ago. I've never forgotten it. It was a profound experience how this presence filled my heart. And I didn't know what was happening. It completely took me by surprise. And I couldn't have told you, I couldn't explain it. I can't now. This was a holy God coming into someone unholy. This was. A God who was, to me, far away, coming near and bringing me into a relationship with Him. I was being washed clean and sins were being forgiven. And as I prayed that prayer, the grace of God that enables a sinful person to receive forgiveness entered my life. And the joy that that left me to words with. No one had to convince me of the reality of God because my overwhelming thought was there is someone called Jesus he is real and all the church going and catechisms learned and rosary said could not substitute for what I received that day God became personal to me and I learned that to attain heaven was not a process of good living and church attendance but a simple matter of repentance from sin and faith in Jesus Christ as <coughs> my place in heaven thereafter assured. And so very evidently, you know, there's God who saves me, believe that, don't we? God was at work in my life saving me. I didn't initiate. He came down. And very evidently, God had blessed the obedient and faithful witness of those people who uh, in kindness taught me and witness to me. Then in the witnessing, God does the saving. And that brings me to 
what I want to leave with you tonight, not just my own story, but perhaps an, an encouragement to do in this community what my friends in Australia did for me, share your faith. It's our, it's our simple responsibility to share our faith and it's God's responsibility to do the same. He doesn't do our part and we can't do his. And one of the challenges in that is gaining an understanding of our mission field. You know, folks, it's always, always struck me as strange that uh, there are so many talks and sermons on how to reach people like Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons or Hindus or atheists, but I have never really heard a message on how to reach Roman Catholics. And yet the chances of meeting up with Mormon and Certainly, round North Friday, I don't know. Quite slim. We need to be taught those things. But Roman Catholics, on the other hand, are our neighbours, are our workmates, sometimes family members, and I hope friends. Because for the Catholic, uh, his whole life, from the cradle right through to the grave and indeed beyond the grave and purgatory is conditioned by the sacramental approach. The Catechism teaches that um, the seven sacraments of the church touch all the stages and all the important moments of the Christian life. That's number 1210 out of the Catholic Catechism. The Council of Trent declares that if anyone says that the sacraments are not necessary for salvation, and that without the men obtained from God through faith alone and the grace of justification, let him be anathema or divinely cursed. But you see, that is exactly what we do with it, isn't it? That men obtained from God through faith alone and the grace of justification. At least I hope we believe Ephesians 2 8 and 9 2 8 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works that no one can boast. Romans 5 says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the tenet of the Reformed faith, but not for the Roman Catholic. For them, salvation is much more a process. It's much more, if you like, a complicated affair. Salvation is sacramental. Let's look at a couple. The first is baptism. Baptism is absolutely crucial to salvation. My parents had not baptized me as an infant, then if I died before being baptized, I was going to hell. The Council of Trent, which was uh, the Catholic Church official response to the challenges of the Reformation, teaches that if you die as an infant without being baptized, baptized you will suffer damnation. Let me quote directly from the Catechism. Holy baptism 
is the basis of the whole Christian life. The gateway to life in the Spirit. Through baptism we are free from, from, from sin and reborn as the sons of God. We become members of Christ, are incorporated into the church and made sharers in their mission. Baptism is the sacrament of regeneration through water in the Word. So according to the church, baptism completely removes original, venal, and the more serious mortal sins. If baptism provides justification, just as if they never sinned, the slave is wiped clean at baptism. And what is it? You see, the biblical position on baptism doesn't make such claims. It doesn't secure our children's eternity. I baptized twins this morning. What a joy that was in my friend. And I clearly point out what it is and what it isn't and what it does and what it doesn't. See, baptism, according to the Reformed position, is a sign and a seal, but it's not salvation. It points to a promise yet to be fulfilled. Biblical baptism does not give a person the right to be called a Christian. But here's what the Catholic Catechism states. Justified by faith in baptism, they are incorporated into Christ. They, they therefore have a right to be called Christians. So that's the mindset. If you understand that, then that equips you to have a conversation. If you know what somebody knows, then that equips you to talk about it. Now, the church teaches that for the infant being baptized, there needs to be present in the baby both faith in Christ and sorrow for sin. You might well ask yourself, uh, how can an infant demonstrate faith in Christ and sorrow for sin? Well, they don't have to. The godparents do. Godparents are the source of the initial saving faith. They have to stand and make solemn vows, confessing their repentance from sin, faith in Christ, and renunciation from evil. So you can say this when you understand that position on baptism that the child is born again, saved, made a child of God on the faith and confession of someone else. And if you understand what the scriptures teach regarding uh, the need for personal faith in Christ and repentance from sin as being necessary to be born again, then you can, in a conversation, lovingly and graciously point out the differences that are very obvious, obvious between the clear biblical position and the scenario of a helpless infant relying on the faith of someone else who may or may not even or to secure an entrance into heaven. So baptism. It is through baptism, according to the Roman Catholic Church, that a person is born again. But that is at odds with what the Reformed Church teaches. And if you understand both 
size, then that equips you to have a conversation. And I do hope you understand both sides. If the Catholic position is new to you, I trust the reform position is not. So here's where we do our work. We find out what we believe. And even if you're long in the faith, you still can't articulate what you believe, it's not too late to learn. There are many fine resources, perhaps some even written by your own pastor, that can help you read up and learn what we so easily take for granted. Let's move on to perhaps another sacrament. Communion. The Eucharist is another name for Holy Communion. And the sacrament of communion is where the believer, the become a believer now, because they were baptized, but the sacrament of communion is where the believer is fed and sustained with Christ. The Catechism states to receive communion is to receive Christ himself. The Catholic Encyclopedia states that Holy Communion is morally necessary for salvation. That is to say, without the graces of this sacrament, it would be very difficult to resist grave temptations and avoid grievous sin. So in the Mass, you've probably never been to a Mass, but you can imagine uh, what it is. In the Mass of the Epiclesis, the Epiclesis is the holiest part of the Mass where the priest holds up the host and you hear a little bell go and then he holds out the cup and then that bell rings again. Uh, so the priest is asking God to send the Holy Spirit to transform the bread and the wine into the very body and blood of Jesus Christ. What happens here, as the church teaches, is that Jesus is offered anew in an, the term is an unbloody sacrifice atoning afresh for the sins of the world and that happens as many times as the mass is offered uh, the doctrine is commonly called transubstantiation here's what hebrews 9 nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own then christ would have had to offer would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin and the sacrifice himself. So Catholic teaching believed that Jesus' words, this is my body, this is my blood, are to be taken literally. So communion is, in fact, a sacrifice. It's Calvary all over again. <coughs> But we can point out that Jesus uh, no more meant that his body was bread, uh, the bread, than he was the wood in the door. He says, I am the door. He wasn't saying he was actually the physical door, the literal door. It's not literal language Jesus was using, it's picture language. And I suggest that when we know that, it equips us to have a conversation with someone that we know and love, someone in our lives. 
and it equips us to contrast the idea, ridiculous idea, we can say, of Jesus being sacrificed ad infinitum with what you believe, that the bread and the wine are simply grace-bearing signs. But yes, Christ is present at communion, but not in a physical sense, but by his Holy Spirit, he is there. And that it is the reading of God's word and not communion that feeds and sustains the dream. The Son, Hebrews says, sustains all things by his powerful word. So becoming familiar with the sacraments will help us. Let me do one more. The penance. The sacrament of penance is hugely important in the teaching of salvation because penance is needed when sin is committed. The church uh, teaches that there are basically two types of sin that can be committed, venial and mortal. Venial sin, according to the Catholic Encyclopedia, is pardonable in itself, meriting not eternal but temporal punishment. So you're not punished all eternity, you're punished temporarily in some way. God is getting, God is dealing with you because I've sinned. You ought to hear that. But the church teaches that uh, mortal or serious sins, uh, such as idolatry, adultery, or denial of the faith, committed after baptism, it actually destroys the grace received at baptism thus making salvation necessary all over again. Here's what the Council of Trent states. The fathers of the church present this sacrament, that's penance, as the second plank of salvation after the shipwreck, which is the loss of grace. And the Catechism confirms that Christ instituted the sacrament of penance for all sinful members of his church, above all for those who, since baptism, have fallen into grave sin and have thus lost their baptismal grace and wounded ecclesial communion, which is not a way of sending stop on the church. It is to them that the sacrament of penance offers a new possibility to convert and recover the grace of justification. And what that really means is this, is that when someone commits grave sin, then he or she have damaged the grace received at baptism to the degree that it is useless. They need to be saved all over again. They are no longer therefore justified, no longer children of God, they are unsaved and lost people. And to get their salvation back again, uh, penance must be made to make atonement for the sins committed. So penance is a sinner penalizing themselves to make right the wrongs that they have committed before God. And penance must be graded with the gravity of the sins committed. The greater the sin, the more the penance can include prayer, an offering, self-sacrifice, you're on your knees, going up to Patrick, or you're walking barefoot. It's penance or the patient acceptance of the cross that you have to bear. But that is not the biblical path 
of salvation. And those who know their Bible can explain that nothing that we do can atone for what we have done. That old hymn puts it well. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to that cross I cling. <coughs> good news of the gospel is that sin, even serious sins, have been dealt with at Calvary. And although it requires repentance, and may do carry consequences in some case, it does not result in the genuine Christian losing their salvation. We are justified by faith in Christ's atoning work in Calvary and not by endless penance. And that truth began the Reformation of which you and I live in his presence. And therein, friends, lies, I think, the crux of the problem for people like me brought up in the way I was brought up. They know Jesus died for them on the cross, but they also know they are sinners. And that is the way we were brought up, entrenched in a system where we were in effect working for our salvation, working to pay off the debt. Here's a cycle. We started baptism, we are saved. We are fed in communion. Inevitably we sin. We lose our salvation. We have to do penance. We are restored to salvation again. You can go through your whole life going round and round and round in that circle. If we know that, and if we know what we believe, then that equips you to have a conversation with people like that. My time's gone. I just want to mention one more thing that I think Peter mentioned. <clears throat> Just one more thing that we need to take on board when trying to reach people. Peter puts it like this. Imagine we did know everything and could clearly articulate it. We need to communicate what we know, he says, with gentleness and respect. Our society is a divided society and those divisions have existed over decades and they have filtered their way down into the mindset of the church. And as such, there can be, deeper than we're willing to admit sometimes, a degree of suspicion and prejudice that runs deeply in the psyche of our culture. And so, to reach people, part of that must be to build loving, genuine relationships with one another. Now I'm not talking about forced and <coughs> bonds that compromise good doctrine, but genuine one-on-one -on -one relationships with Roman Catholic people that demonstrate, demonstrate love and respect for who they are. 
That's the meaning of the gospel. So Peter talked to his people. He said, the people that you reach, respect them. The answers that you give for the hope that lies within you, it needs to be shared with gentleness. The testimony that you give and the gospel that you teach must be done with gentleness and respect. Now in Northern Ireland, I don't think that has always been the case. Evangelism has often been done outside of the context of relationship and has at times consisted of making darting, dogmatic, fundamental statements of doctrine which in themselves are accurate but appear harsh in that place. Friends, it struck me that Jesus was full of both truth and grace. And truth will arm us, will prepare us, but grace will give us access to hearts. So in conclusion, to be an effective witness, I suggest in a mission field such as ours, we must of all be Christians who live with Christ set apart in our hearts. Be a Christian in other words. Also, it will help us to be a prepared Christian. Let's know what we're talking about. Thirdly, be a gracious Christian. If you would like to know more, I, I, I recognize that I have talked a lot and given you a lot of information. And my only goal in coming here tonight was to whet your appetite, mm -hmm. to go away and to read for yourself. And if I could recommend a little uh, booklet that really helped me, it's the facts on Roman Catholicism. It sets the mark here. You can Google that. You can pick it up on Amazon. It's about three or four pounds, and it is a great investment. If you have family, friends, or uh, it'll be a very helpful read. It's factual without being emotional, mm -hmm. and I think it will go somewhere to equipping you and I to reach out. Thank you for listening to this Castlereagh Fellowship podcast. For more podcasts, Bible teaching videos, and to see what's going on at the church, please visit our website, castlereaghfellowship.com. God bless.